It's Thursday, October the 4th. Happy Thanksgiving weekend, Canada. Canada got the raw end of a new NAFTA deal. A child murderer gets to live in a condo because she self-identifies as native. America's fighting for justice and the right to be presumed innocent. And I'm going to share some of my personal journey with God and his church. recording today uh, from the parking lot at my daughter's cross-country meet in between races. So if you hear some extra noise in the background and some traffic, that is why. All right, we have two stories coming out of Canada today. But before we do that, let me remind you to visit my website. I have a few video series up and I add a new one every single week. So for the past few weeks, I've been talking about teaching theology to kids. So there's some great videos up about that. There's also a series about abortion and euthanasia. So go ahead online and check out that. It's at lauraleesiemens.com. Okay, Canada, what a week it's been. One big thing happening is the new NAFTA deal. So NAFTA is out and USMCA is in. So when Trump won the election, a friend came to me and asked me, what did I think that the Trump uh, election would mean for Canada? So I told that person, well, Trump wants to end NAFTA and come up with a new deal. And Trump is probably one of the best negotiators in the world. And Trudeau is a part-time drama teacher. And my friend said, wow, we're going to be trashed. And guess what? We were trashed. So Trudeau sent um, Christina Freeland who went to an anti-Trump rallies while she was in the States to do NAFTA negotiations. So she was terrible. Um, Trudeau got some headway with Trump and then stabbed him in the back with a press conference where he called Trump a bully. So what Trump ended up doing is he did a deal with Mexico and then told Canada we could sign on if we wanted. The deadline was midnight. And so at around 10 o'clock, Trudeau signed. And we got nothing. We actually got worse than nothing. We actually have to check with the states before we can do any deals with China. Basically, we gave away part of our sovereignty. It should be pretty clear to everyone that Canada got the shaft end of this deal. But the Globe and Mail is calling Christina Freeland a princess warrior. And if what they mean by that is a princess who does nothing and is useless, then great. That's who she is. But do not try and sell this as a good deal for Canada. The other major story in Canada this week is going to be my Canadian history story of the week. So before we can get into what happened this week, we have to go all the way back to 1976. So in 1976, Canada abolished the death penalty. And because we no longer had a death penalty, we needed a punishment that was really severe for murder. So we then added mandatory life imprisonment for both first degree and second degree murder. Now, some people thought that convicted murderers needed an incentive to rehabilitate themselves. So if they were going to be in prison forever, there was no incentive. 
So Canada came up with a clause that was known as the Faint Hope Clause. So this clause allows those who've been sentenced to life in prison to apply for early parole once they've served 15 years. For the person to apply, they had to send their application to the province where they'd been convicted. And then a jury would listen to a report on the prisoner's conduct. Uh, they would hear the story of the offense. The family of the victim would speak. And this, of course, creates extra trauma for the victim's family. The first review for this clause happened in 1987. So by October of 2010, 1,508 offenders had been eligible for the Faint Hope Clause. That means 1,508 families had to sit through a parole hearing for the murderer of their family member. Of those, 135 offenders were actually granted parole. In 2006, Stephen Harper ran for office as prime, to be the Prime Minister. One of the things he promised is that he would actually repeal this clause and end this loophole. Stephen Harper kept that promise and he sent a bill to the Senate to end the clause. But at that time, the Conservatives had a minority government. So uh, for the Americans listening who don't know what that means, that means even though they had more seats than any other party, the other parties combined had more seats than the Conservatives. This made it basically impossible to get any bills passed. So this bill failed. However, Mr. Harper put the bill through again in the spring of 2011, and this time it passed. It came into effect December the 2nd, 2011. However, something happened on April the 8th, 2009, three years before the Faint Hope Clause was revoked. An eight-year-old girl named Tori Stafford did not return home from school. It was the first time her mother had allowed her to walk home from school alone. Her town of Woodstock, Ontario, began searching for this missing girl, and when night came and she still hadn't returned, people realized this was not a case of a child heading to a friend's home or to the park instead of going home. It wasn't until July 19th that her body was found. And as the story unfolded, it became clear if the police had taken her disappearance seriously in those first few hours, there's a pretty good possibility she would have been found. After an autopsy, it was determined that she had been sexually abused and then beaten to death with a hammer. Her liver was badly damaged. Her ribs were broken, but it was actually blows to her head that had killed her. The entire country was outraged. How can this happen to a little eight-year-old girl? Police arrested two people, Michael Rafferty, who was 28, and Terry Lynn, who was 18 years old. Michael Rafferty had abused little Tori sexually and beaten her. But it was Terry Lynn who had kidnapped Tori and then gave Tori to her boyfriend to rape. Tori was raped repeatedly over a few days and she begged Terry to not let Michael hurt her anymore. Terry ignored her pleas and did nothing to stop Michael. Once he was done with her, the two beat Tori to death and it was Terry who hit her in the head with a hammer and killed her. Both were found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. Terry Lynn was held in a women's prison in Kitchener, Ontario. Then a week ago, 
everyone found out that she had been moved from her prison cell to a healing lodge in Saskatchewan. So this is a place that offers spiritual approach for offenders. It's minimum security. Uh, Terry Lynn now has a nice room. She has a living room. It's very spacious. Really the only rule they have to follow is that they need to follow Aboriginal programming and Aboriginal spirituality. Now maybe you're asking, oh, is Terry Lynn native? No, no, she's not. Her family's been clear. They are not native. However, Terry Lynn now self-identifies as a native. So that makes her one in our present day culture. So what does that mean? It means she's going to spend time in a large circular spiritual lodge. Aboriginal leaders are going to teach her their ways. She'll be part of Aboriginal ceremonies and workshops. The goal will be to find healing and to connect with the Indigenous culture. There's no fences. There's no bars. There are children present. And that's because at this healing lodge, it's not a prison, it's a community. So mothers who are serving out their sentences can have their children live with them in this community. This is outrageous. It's been nine years since Tory Stafford died. And because Terry Lynn was sentenced before the Faint Hope Clause was ended, Terry Lynn can apply. In six years, Terry Lynn can apply for parole. And that means the family of Tory Stafford will have to sit through the jury hearing about how Terry Lynn has found healing at the healing lodge. The conservatives are begging the liberals to please stop this. The conservatives have sent out a bill to try to make sure Terry Lynn goes back to prison with walls and fences and bars, you know, prison. But the Liberals and the NDP have voted no for this. Even worse, Trudeau left Parliament during the vote to go talk to reporters, and he called the Conservatives ambulance-chasing lawyers. I don't understand why Trudeau is doing this. He's not going to win any love by siding with the most hated woman in Canada. Tory Stafford would have been 18 years old today if she had not been tortured and brutally killed. We're at a place in our world where people will vote for something that is clearly wrong if it means voting the party line. Every single NDP and Liberal who voted no, they're allowing Terry Lynn to live in this healing lodge instead of rotting away in prison. They've crossed a line. Party and politics over justice for a little girl. But this is politics today. This is where we are. Party means everything. Truth and justice means nothing. This has been made clear by the news that is coming from the United States. I'm talking, of course, about the Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination. Last week, I gave you the history about this case. If you didn't hear, I recommend you go back and do it. You can find my past podcasts on my website at lauraleesiemens.com. But we're going to look at a different side of the story today. A black woman named Candace Owens came across a group of women who were protesting Kavanaugh. This is how that went. The audio was not very good for this story because it was recorded outside on a very busy highway. But I want you to listen to Candace, who's a black woman, trying to explain to a group of white women why history shows that it's not a good thing when a woman is believed with no evidence. Could I ask you a question? Um, are you a big supporter of Carolyn Bryant? She gave a pretty credible testimony in 1955. Do you know who she is? Uh, 1955. Yeah. 1955. So Carolyn Bryan is the woman that testified that Emmett Till, whose body was lynched and burned beyond recognition, um, said something to her in a grocery store. The only testimony that there was was her word. It was credible. No one's trying to lynch 
Lynn, but you're not, not listening to me. As a black I'm not done. As I'm not a black done. woman. Why are you cutting me off? I'm not done. I let you speak, okay? So if you want to talk about as a black woman, because of the death of Emmett Till, because I understand that white woman will stand up on a trial and lie, okay? I do not believe in convicting anyone, disrupting your life, or doing anything until due process is served. Okay, so that was Candace Owens, and here is the story she was talking about. So the year was 1955. Emmett Till was 14 years old, and he was a happy, mischievous black boy. And he lived in Chicago. Emmett attended a segregated school. However, he didn't understand what life was like in the Democrat-run South. That summer, Emmett was visiting relatives in a small town called Money, Mississippi. It was August the 24th. Emmett was having some fun outside a small store with some of the other boys, some of his cousins. And he was telling them about life in Chicago. And he told this group that he had a white girlfriend. And they did not believe him. And as a dare, they told him to go into the store and flirt with a white woman who was behind the counter. Emmett went into the store and bought some candy. On the way out, uh, he turned and he said to the woman, Bye, baby. His friends all began laughing at him. The woman behind the counter was Caroline Bright, and she was outraged. And the story of this black boy being rude to this white woman spread. And as the story grew, by the time Caroline's husband had returned from his trip, the story was that Emmett had grabbed her hand, pulled her, and then followed her behind the counter, grabbed her by her waist, and then began using vulgar language and began telling her about all these things he had done to white women. Roy, Caroline's husband, and his half-brother J.W. got in their car and drove to the home where Emmett was staying. They took Emmett and they threw him into their car. Emmett's uncle was there and he tried to keep Emmett, but he was outpowered by these men. Emmett was taken and then beaten until he was unrecognizable. They then threw his body into a river. It was a few days before his body was found. His uncle was unable to even identify Emmett because he'd been beaten so badly. It was a ring Emmett was wearing that was used to identify his body. The FBI wanted Emmett just buried right away in Mississippi, but Emmett's mother refused. She demanded that Emmett's body be brought back to Chicago. She then had an open casket funeral and demanded that everyone see what had happened to her son. People came to the funeral and they took pictures of Emmett's body. Those pictures were published in newspapers and magazines. It was an all-white trial in a Democrat-run county. The courtroom was segregated, so no blacks were even allowed into the courtroom. Caroline testified that Emmett had spoken disrespectfully to her. Then when she tried to get away, I grabbed her wrist. She was afraid, and he came over the counter and then grabbed her waist and, and spoke about sex to her. She cried, and she seemed credible. The jury found Roy and J.W. innocent. The two men then told their story to a magazine, admitting that they had killed Emmett. They had needed to defend the honor of Caroline, but they had already been found innocent, and you can't try someone twice for the same crime. Last year, at the age of 82, Caroline had said none of it was true. Emmett just bought some candy and then said, bye, babe. That was it. At the age of 83, Caroline opened up about the guilt she's felt for years. 
in her words, that shouldn't have happened to that boy. He didn't do anything to deserve that. Roy and J.W. died without ever showing any regret. So that's the story Candace was talking about. The death of Emma, it lit a fire under the civil rights movement. The democratic Jim Crow laws were finally ended 10 years later in 1965. Maybe you, like the white women Candace was talking to, are outraged right now that I would compare a black teenage boy from the 1950s to a white man in his 50s trying to get onto the Supreme Court in 2018. And I'm not comparing Emmett and Kavanaugh. I am comparing Democrats and Democrats. You see, they've not changed at all. They still lie. They still destroy in order to get what they want. In this case, they want to kill babies. Kavanaugh will mean that the court will have more people who believe in the Constitution than people who do not. And Roe v. Wade was decided incorrectly. The Democrats know this. You can hear the history of Roe v. Wade by going to my website, lauraleesiemens.com, and checking out the podcasts under the series clips. You will find the Roe v. Wade. My hope, personally, is that Roe v. Wade is overturned and that Kavanaugh writes a majority opinion. We've been sold this story that it was whites versus blacks in America, and it was not. It was Democrats versus blacks. The Republican Party was started for the purpose of ending slavery. When the Republicans won the war, the Democrats created the KKK. Democrats created the Jim Crow laws. Republicans have fought for blacks. But didn't the party switch? If you think all the racists left the Democrat Party and then joined the Republican Party and all the people against racism left the Republican Party and then joined the Democrat Party, you need to put down the weed you've smoked enough. You can see in history that as the South becomes less racist, it becomes more Republican. And let's look at FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt. He was a Democrat and the man people point to to prove that the Democrats stopped being racist. FDR is the man who put Japanese into concentration camps. FDR is one who put Hugo Black on the Supreme Court. Hugo Black was not only a member of the KKK, he was the lawyer for the KKK. FDR was a huge racist, and his New Deal was the worst thing that ever happened to the black family. Under his New Deal, poor families could get money from the government through welfare programs, and some jobs were created. However, the jobs went mostly to white families, and the welfare went mostly to black families. The welfare was only available as long as there was no fathers in the household. Today, around 70% of black children are born into families with no father. This has been the most devastating thing that has happened in the black community. If you don't believe the Democrats are still the racist party, look at the way Republicans treat black people who support the Democrat Party. Now, look at the way the Democrat Party supports black people who support the Republican Party. The party has not changed. Kevin is not black, but he does oppose their agenda, and they will still destroy a man that they know is innocent, not just try to keep him off the Supreme Court. He's lost his teaching job at Harvard. There's calls for him to not be allowed to be part of his daughter's basketball team. There are calls to have him impeached so he can't even be a judge at all. 
This is not just about Kavanaugh. This is a signal to anyone who might oppose their agenda. They will destroy you. It was the Democrats that released the home address of Republican senators last week, putting the families of the senators at risk. I really felt this story, and I realized this week why. I see a man who's given his life to his country. He served his country, not just by serving um, the presidency when he worked for Bush or when he worked for Starr and investigated the Clintons. He served as a judge, and as a judge, he refused to vote in any election because he believes strongly a judge should not be invested in any one party. He also served by teaching law students at Harvard. But he's also served by feeding the homeless and tutoring underprivileged children. He's been doing this since high school. This is a man who served his community. This is a man who served his country. And now his country is turning on him. And I can feel that pain. Today I'm going to share with you some personal stories, some of my journey with Jesus and with the church. A few weeks ago I shared the story of my adoption and my salvation. If you heard that story, you'll remember that I was raised in a pastor's home. So right from a very young age, I was very aware that the church is not made up of perfect people. The church is most definitely made up of sinners. Sinners who are saved by grace and trying to do life God's way, but sinners. However, at the same time, the church I grew up in was my family. I went to a small private school where everyone from the school also went to my church. So I was with the same people all day long, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And once I hit upper elementary, Friday nights and the summer we went to camp and it was mostly the same people. So it was definitely a community. I think that's how God wants church to be. We encourage each other. We love each other. We help each other. It made for a great childhood and the church grew as well. My father has never been someone who dumbed down the gospel or made church user-friendly. He's always been someone who preaches the truth and doesn't shy away from topics that people might not like. And the church grew, and I believe because of the community we had, because of the great preaching also. People wanted to be part of our community. That's what drew them into the church, and the preaching impacted their lives. However, at the same time, the church is a place where a person who loves power is often attracted. People who crave power are, in my opinion, more dangerous than people who crave money. I've seen this in churches, the drive for power and the hatred of anyone you think might take your power away or anyone stopping you from having that power. Even in this blissful church I grew up in, I saw this over and over and over again. When I was starting high school, my father took time off pastoring, and after moving around a little, we found ourselves in another church where my father was able to support the pastor. This was the second church where I felt a great sense of community. I especially looked up to the older women in this church as role models. They were an example of how God tells us to live as women, helping and edifying the younger women. One of these women got cancer and passed away while I was away at college. I grieved for her the way you would grieve for an aunt or a cousin. The community in the church was a family. When my husband and I were first married, we found ourselves in a church where we could serve. I wanted that community again. We loved the youth and the children in that community, and we did our best to serve them. We did become a close community with the youth and the children and their families. 
we were content and we thought this was going to be the community we would serve in for a long time. And then I found myself pregnant with our first child. But like I said, churches attract people who want power. And this church had some people who had power. And they'd already destroyed anyone who looked like they might take that power away. For some reason, they locked their sights on our little family as a threat. They began to find ways to destroy our reputation. Some of it was kind of ridiculous. I mean, we sang a song in our youth group called Days of Elijah. And they were angry because we were not living in the days of Elijah because Elijah died a long time ago. So we were singing things that were incorrect. I mean, clearly we do not believe Elijah was alive today. The song is obviously showing that things have not changed since Bible time. God is the same today as he was then. And Satan is attacking the same today as he was attacking then. But they were upset we allowed kids to play guitar during youth group. I once wore a dress that didn't have sleeves. It was very nitpicky. But then one day I got a phone call where I was told I was a cancer and I needed to leave. They said my marriage was unbiblical because in our vows I had told my husband I would fulfill his dreams. For the record, I would never have a tacky vow like that. We had this medieval themed wedding where I wanted everything to be old fashioned and as old fashioned as possible. We didn't even have any electricity. It was all candles. And we found the oldest possible version of wedding vows that I could find. But I couldn't convince this person of that. She was there and remembered my vows apparently better than I did and was convinced our marriage was unbiblical. It was actually kind of crazy. Really probably the most bizarre experience I've ever had. But that phone call was the beginning of the end and it went downhill after that. And we knew we had to leave. I cried more over that time period than I had probably in my whole life. I was in shock. My community had just kicked me out, and really I didn't even understand why. We lived in a small town, and soon lies were being spread around the town. I was a teacher at a small Christian school, and lies spread into the school as well. It was like I was drowning, and people were just pouring more water into the pool. We found a church where we could attend, and I didn't want a community. I just wanted my husband and God. But I also wanted to make sure the youth that we were working with that didn't have Christian families would have a place to land if they chose to not stay in the church once we left. The church we found kind of seemed to meet all those needs. It had a nice youth group, a decent enough services on Sunday. It was big enough that I didn't need to talk to anyone. We could just attend and figure out what had just happened. And then just a month before our first baby was born, we were called into the church office. Apparently, one of the men from the church we had left called the church to warn them about us. So we sat in this church with a pastor and the youth pastor while they talked to us like we were five-year-olds being scolded. We were told we were not allowed to talk to anyone from the youth, and we weren't allowed to have any Bible studies in our home. I hate crying in front of people, especially when I'm mad. That day I was mad and hurt and also huge. I was about to have a baby, and I definitely cried a lot in front of those men. Looking back, that might have been the worst hurt I felt because we had done nothing but just attend. I felt like I was worthless. I felt like God didn't want me. All my life, all I'd ever wanted to do was serve God. And even though it was clearly not God in that room, but two pastors who loved power and were afraid someone was going to threaten it, To me, sitting on that couch, it felt like God didn't want me. We drove home, and I think maybe at that point we were close to leaving the church. I mean, the church. 
like walking away from church in general. A pastor named Pastor Burkholder came to visit us. He was from a church in a nearby town. He came and he sat in our living room. I don't think I've ever been more afraid in my life. What lies had he been told? What was he going to tell us? He told us he wanted us to come to his church. He didn't want us to do anything. He didn't want us to serve. He wanted to serve us. He wanted to help us heal. He said once we were back on our feet and we felt we'd recovered, we could look for another church or we could stay and serve. He wasn't asking us to join the church. He wasn't asking us to sign anything. He just wanted us to be okay. It was the first time in months that I felt like I wasn't drowning. That was 14 years ago. I think that if he had not visited us that day and opened his church community up to us as a place of healing, our family would be in a very different place today. We did go to his church and did become part of the community there. Although I held most of my heart back, I was friends, but not family. I couldn't do that again. A few months after our daughter was born, the youth pastor who had ambushed us in the office that day called to apologize to us. That was kind of huge, and I don't even remember what I said on the phone that day. I was just in shock. It was a turning point in the healing process. Then I was given the chance to move to a town where I'd gone in high school and to run the children's department at the church where I had been in high school. On top of that, my dad was the pastor. It was the perfect fit. I was so happy there. I did not put up guards or walls. I loved those people. They were my family. They were my community. I loved the children so much. I taught every Sunday morning and every Sunday night. I did a drama program, and those kids rocked. I mean, they were amazing. We had a WANA on Wednesday nights. I ran a homeschool Bible and gym class one day a week, and I ran Bible clubs in the schools on the other days. I had two kids at this point, and it was busy but amazing. I loved the church. I loved the kids. And I loved seeing God do amazing things. And God was moving. The church was growing. We even had to build a huge addition to the church. But that need for power had overtaken another heart. And there was someone who wanted my father's job. And one Sunday, in a flash, everything was gone. A friend came to say a group of men were meeting in one of the offices and something was going down. I walked into that office and I knew what they were doing. They were trying to get rid of my dad while he was preaching from a pulpit just a few feet away in the sanctuary. And I called them out on it and they yelled at me. And I've honestly never in my life been yelled at like that. I actually took my breath away. I looked over at a man who had daughters the same age as mine. I'd been to his home. His kids were friends of mine. I looked at him like, do something. And he just looked down. He wouldn't even look at me. I walked out, got my children, texted my husband, and we left. It was my oldest daughter's seventh birthday. This vile man had waited until the perfect time to strike. My mom was going into the hospital the next day for surgery. After church, these men cornered my father, and he didn't have the strength or the will to fight, so he just resigned right there. I was told by people when they asked why I was gone and why my father had resigned, they were told we had done something so bad that they couldn't even tell us what it was. I have to say, points for creativity. My mother came out of the surgery, and after a few weeks' recovery, she was okay, thankfully. But that was the last time I let myself be part of a church community. But it wasn't the last time I was part of a church. That first Sunday, we got our family up and we went to church. We knew that if we stayed home even just one week, we would never go to church again. 
We visited a lot of churches, kind of we were looking for a church, kind of just needing to be somewhere on a Sunday morning. It was a few years before we finally settled into a good church, but we never missed a Sunday during that time period. Now, maybe you're asking, why am I sharing this? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, when I look at what's happening at the Kavanaugh family, I feel their pain. This must feel like the whole world has turned on them. And I know that feeling because my whole world turned on me twice. Two, I wrote a blog about seven years ago about my journey of church hurt. And it's still today my most read blog. In fact, it's often my most read blog of the week. I hear from people after they read it. And what I hear is that people have been hurt by the church and so they don't ever go back, ever. And that's not okay. We had to remember that Jesus created the church. It's the way God planned on sending his message of hope into the world. The church is the bride of Christ. You can't say you love Jesus and hate his bride. You just can't. I'm not going to say something tacky like, you probably had a bad experience at a restaurant, but it didn't stop you from eating out, because it's not the same thing. If you had church hurt, it wasn't a bad experience. It was a heartbreak. It's more like someone who's been engaged to be married and then found out their fiancé was cheating on them. And then that person deciding to never date again. It's more like that. I'm sharing my story because I want you to know that I get it. I get what that hurt feels like. I get that you don't want to have anything to do with church. I get it. But even though I understand it, you're still wrong. I share this because I do love the church And I have seen over the years that it's Satan that's out to destroy the church. In the Middle East, Christians are killed. In Nigeria, they're raped, beaten, burned alive. In Syria, they're crucified in the center of their towns. That is Satan trying to destroy the church. In Canada, Satan attacks the church differently. He puts the love of power into the hearts of people. He divides us. He tells us we need to stop teaching the Bible and be more user-friendly. He convinces us the right thing to do is to feed the hungry and get involved with social programs while ignoring the soul. Satan tells us a successful program is one where the church gets good PR and lots of people walk through the door, even if not a single person hears about Jesus or turns to Jesus. That's still successful. Satan is destroying our churches in Canada by making us weak and ineffective. We're consumers. We're customers. Even outreach isn't called outreach anymore. Now we're calling it engaging. We don't do the difficult things like sharing the gospel with people. We do the easy things that give us social justice points. We get the perfect Instagram picture and then we leave. The person we helped has food for a few days but doesn't have hope. They're still lost in their sin. Our country doesn't need another social program. Our country needs Jesus. And Jesus created the church as a way to spread his message. We're supposed to be delivering Jesus. Satan wants us delivering anything but Jesus. I do love the church. But I call out the problems I see in the church, especially here in Canada, because I love the church. I think because of what I've been through, I'm actually less afraid. You don't like me? Join the club. Lots of people don't like me. Satan's been trying to get me to shut up for my entire adult life. And I haven't listened yet. And I don't plan on listening. I've been knocked down a few times. 
But every time I was knocked down, Jesus was there. So if you've left church because of past hurt, here's what I want you to do. This Sunday, go to church. Just go. You don't have to talk to anyone. Just go. And next week, go again. Go every Sunday for six months. And once you've done that, do another six months. You will find healing, I promise. It'll take a long time. I promise that too. But once you find your healing, then become part of the solution. Imagine what Canada and United States will look like if the bride of Christ stands up and is the church God called us to be. The church is already having a huge impact in the world today, but it can be even bigger. I believe if the church did stand up and be the church God created us to be, the gospel will spread so quickly. I always end the podcast with the gospel, but today I'm ending it with a call out to the person who has left the church. Dry your tears and it will be okay. Make sure you get yourself up and go to church this weekend. It's Thanksgiving weekend here in Canada. It'll be a good week to start over. Jesus is calling you. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. Check out my website for past podcasts, blogs, and videos. 